Good morning. My name is Bill Hatcher, one of your elders. Um, today's scripture comes from the book of Matthew, um, verses 31 to 37. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 37. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, it's found on page 810, the Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 to 37. Let us stand as we read God's word. Chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. May you take a few minutes and reflect on the word of God. Uh, Please be seated. Well, good morning uh, and welcome uh, to Christ Community Church. My name is David Heinrichs, and I am uh, running with kids most of the time in the nursery, K-5, middle school, high school. Um, 
also uh, help with the worship band, uh, lead them, lead that team, and work in some of the missions that we have here at church. So I'm kind of skipping around in all the different ministries, and um, and I know v- most, if not all of you, um, because I work in a lot of areas that you work in, and I'm very grateful to be up here and just see you. Uh, and those of you who don't know me, uh, Sam said, get ready. You're about to be my friend in some way. Um, now you know why I wanted Sam Bowman to uh, sing that offering. All of those who feel unworthy. Because when you heard the text that was read this morning, you thought, why did David pick that text for us this morning, right? Why, who would ever want that? You know, breaking oaths, breaking marriages. Let's talk about that. Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first of which Sam already mentioned last week, uh, Paul Phillips, our pastor, he chose all the easy assignments and then gave Sam and me the hard ones. So I know you're listening to this recording, Paul, and we all thank you for that. Um, but seriously, we do expositional preaching. We follow the word of God, not just the words in a passage, but we follow the direction that scripture takes us. And this morning, Jesus turns his eye on these two topics of, of divorce and oaths. And as we are his disciples, as we are his followers, when the designer, when the creator, when our king turns his attention to these subjects, so do we. So let's pray. God, I feel convicted. I feel the weight of the truth that you presented so many years before as you verbally said these words to the crowd that was gathered around you. And as I think of my life and I think of my friends and my family and their lives, it feels weighty to hear these words. So I pray with the conviction that we, your followers, would not experience condemnation, but grace, clarity, and love. That's what we need. And that's what we pray for. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've all heard of movies where people in those movies uh, get the wrong orders or are confused. And in the chaos of not knowing what to do, uh, those situations create evil. Crimson Tide is one of these movies. It's a movie about a submarine uh, and it stars Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. This was the year before I was married in 1995. Some of you have uh, seen that movie. Others, it's a classic, I guess, by now. The submarine that they're on, they're both in the military and they're both on this submarine. Well, the submarine receives an emergency action message. And the message is that Russian nuclear missiles are fueling up. And the order is to launch 10 missiles from this sub to destroy the Russian nuclear arsenal. Well, before the submarine can launch its missiles, a second message is received. It arrives. But before they can read the message, an attack happens by a Russian submarine, revealing only part of the message. What should they do? Should they launch the missiles or should they think that the second message that they don't have access to actually says not to launch the missiles? 
with the last confirmed order being to launch their, their missiles, Gene Hackman, the captain, decides he's going to proceed. But Denzel Washington, his character, refuses to concur, and the plot thickens. It's a great movie. You should watch it. But it's, it's great because in that confusion, both of them are trying to figure out what to do. And, and that kind of typifies or exemplifies what's going on with the followers of Jesus. These people have the law from Moses in the Old Testament. They have Pharisees who say all of these things about the law. And the Israelites are kind of in the middle thinking, well, what, what, what do I do? How do I proceed? And Jesus stands up. And this is the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. His emergency action, what is it called? Emergency action message. The sermon is clear. It clarifies the law. You have heard it said that, but I say to you. So we can, at this moment, we can be very thankful that Jesus clarifies. And, And we notice that when Jesus clarifies, we notice what he's up to. Jesus is building a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of acting or behaving. And it changes everything. Last week, Sam looked at what Jesus said about lust. And today, we're looking at words that bind us, the title of the sermon. Uh, We're looking at integrity. This is what this is called, having integrity. An integer, that's where this word comes from. The integer, you know, from math, is a whole number. Not a fraction, not a number split up two or three different ways. It's a whole number. So in the same way, integrity for you and me means that we're a whole person. That means that what you do in public matches what you think privately. What you say matches what you think privately. All of those things are in sync and match. You are not two-faced. You are not pretending. You're not lying. You're not cheating. And importantly today, you're not reneging. Do what you say and say what you do. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So that's the idea of integrity. So what, you say? Why is this important? Why? I'm going to heaven. I'm a sinner. I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm I'm forgiven. So why is it important for us to have integrity? Well, let me ask you this question. How will people have faith in God if they cannot have faith in God's representatives? I mean, that's how you're saved, right? Trusting God. I I know it's going to be a stretch. I know you just have to use your imagination for this next analogy. Just work with me a little bit here. What if your politician was dishonest or lacked all measure of integrity? Just use your imagination to imagine what kind of world that might be for you to think about that. And are you going to trust the government when they tax you? Are you going to trust the government when they ask you to fight in a war? In the same way, when a Christian is dishonest and lacks integrity... How can they believe or trust the one that we represent? That's the importance of integrity. We need to face the world and tell the truth. 
even if the truth hurts, even if the truth costs us greatly. Well, Jesus, among all the different categories that we could talk about within integrity, Jesus picks on two, marriage and oaths. So let's look at those briefly. First, Jesus talks about marriage. You can see this in verse 31, and you can also see the Pharisees' problem, the issue that was raised. Verse 31, it was, it was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So you see it, don't you? Whoever, whenever, for whatever reason, the only thing you have to do is, is give her a certificate so that she can get married again and not be left alone. Later in Matthew 19, you can turn there if you'd like. We're going to be back and forth there. It's very helpful to read that in conjunction with Matthew 5. It says in Matthew 19, the Pharisees, their heart is revealed. And their heart says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Because that's what we want. That's what we want. The more I learned about what was going on back then, the more I discovered that lust was the number one reason men divorced their wives. They got tired of them physically, and they wanted a new wife. That's no coincidence that in Matthew 5, lust immediately precedes divorce. So the society that we see here in Matthew 5, they have a very pragmatic view of marriage, a very casual view of marriage. They divorce for frivolous reasons. And these reasons led to chaos, led to exceptions. You could read about those exceptions. One of them is a concession made by Moses. Jesus says, because of the hardening of their hearts in Deuteronomy 24. When Christ, when Christ brings this up, you know what his correction is? It's very interesting if you think about what Christ does here. At first glance, you think it's very strict and tight, and it is. It's very strict. He says, anytime you divorce someone and marry someone else, it's committing adultery. It seems very strict, very tight. Why does he do that? Why does he, why does he get so strong? There's only one exception that might be a condition for divorce. You can also read in Matthew 19, verse 4, these words. Jesus says, haven't you read... That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Haven't you read that in Genesis? And Jesus said, haven't you read for this very reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife? Be united to his wife. He actually moves these words into our, our minds this morning. United to his wife means the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh, he repeats again. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There's a couple things we learn about Jesus' mind, about what he's thinking about marriage. The first thing is obvious, what God has joined together. The, the point is, your marriage is something that God has joined together. Marriage is God's idea. Where you sit with your marriage right now, if you're married, you have to remember that this is God's design for you. This is what he's done through the years. 
This is not an invention. Marriage is not an invention of a group of people that say, I'm lonely. I need a spouse. I need some friendship. So I'm going to get married. It's not an invention. This is God's invention. Anthropologists have argued why every single culture in the entire world across all of recorded history has marriage. Every culture. Why? Why is that? And they argue some evolutionary or biological explanation. But, but we understand what Jesus is saying this morning, that it is God's design. God's design. It's not good for man to be alone, he says. And, and then he made Eve for the express purpose of marrying her to Adam. So when the designer of marriage speaks and tells us what marriage is for and tells us what marriage is and what it isn't, we should listen. But also, and more to the point here, we learn that marriage isn't like joining the PTA or the Rotary Club or getting hired on as a, in a career and a job. He says something very unique, and he says it twice. He says the two become one flesh. So whenever you have a question about marriage, about what God thinks about marriage, go to those two words and just try to figure out what that means. One flesh. That's the key to understanding Jesus' words here. Let me give you an example. If marriage is one flesh, becoming one flesh, then what is divorce? The tearing of flesh. You see? Amputation. And, and, and you can really understand what God thinks about when he thinks about divorce. You think about it as amputation. Think if you have a wart on your arm, are you going to tear your arm off? No, you're not. Nobody would do that. If you have a mosquito bite, of course not. If you have a deep cut that hurts, no, you wouldn't tear your arm off for those things. But let's say you had something like gangrene or some kind of disease that would flow from your arm that's infected to the rest of your flesh. Would you tear your arm off? Well, still, no, I wouldn't tear my arm off. I'd go to the hospital. But yes, there's a place for amputation. There's a place for it. But it is very serious. There are times when you need to kill the armor, tear it away to save a life. So it's possible, yes. But as soon as you hear the words, as soon as I, humans, we all hear the words, yes, marriage should be forever, and, and there's an exception. And then all of a sudden we think, okay, what, what are the exceptions? Oh, okay, oh, that's your exception. What about this? Is this, is this? And you just, we start working very, very diligently to get our way. And Jesus is trying to show us, let's go back to the beginning. It's one flesh. So what does that mean for us today? Let me suggest some things to us as we think through marriage and divorce. Marriage, first, marriage is to be exclusive and for your entire life. Just think of your arm. Your arm isn't supposed to be passed around from person to person like, let's say, a tool, like a hammer. A hammer, you can pass it around and share it. Your arm is not supposed to be that. We're supposed to keep it on your body. The intention is to you'd have this one arm to use all the days of your life. That's the intention. So we need to remember that. So many ways our society gets this wrong, doesn't it? So many ways. Having multiple sexual encounters or sexual partners before marriage 
What is that like? That's like joining yourself to a person and then tearing yourself away from them. And if you do that enough, I wonder, I wonder what the destruction is going to be. Another thing we can learn from this when we think of one flesh is we can think that many bad things can tear the flesh apart. If you can't stand your spouse anymore, if you begin to treat them horribly or they begin to treat you horribly or even abusively, this could be an example of desertion, your spouse abandoning you or deserting you, uh, and that could end in divorce. That's found in 1 Corinthians 7 where a marriage is dissolved because of abandonment and desertion. Uh, If there's an affair, this is adultery. It can end in divorce, tearing of flesh. Um, So all those things, they might be reasons you would amputate your arm. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Even if you don't talk, he's saying, the most casual sexual encounter, even the most casual, even the most spontaneous, without a lot of thought behind it, let's say a prostitute, you're still joining yourself with her in body. For it is said the two will become one flesh. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are on the outside of his body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. If you read Romans 1, there's an indictment on humanity of all the sins that we've committed that that warrant God's wrath, his all-consuming, fiery wrath upon mankind. I think there's maybe 20 or so mentioned. There's many, many mentioned How often is sexual immorality mentioned in Romans 1? You can go back and look. This sin is unique in that way. So be careful with sex. Be careful because there's a deep bond that forms that when it breaks, it's the tearing of flesh. Another thing we might learn and remember is if you follow Christ You should hear conviction, but you shouldn't hear condemnation. Now, if you don't follow Christ, if you don't, if you don't, you stand before God on your own and your life is laid out before the Lord on that day we call judgment day and you don't lean on Jesus, you don't receive the righteousness from Jesus, the forgiveness from Jesus for your sins, if you stand on your own, then you will experience the all-consuming condemnation from God. But if you follow Christ, you know he's forgiven everything in your past. So if you're here today and you have made a mistake in this way, in this, this area, whether you're single and you've made mistakes or you're married and you've made mistakes, conviction, yes. Condemnation, no. Conviction is seeing the truth that Jesus gives us and agreeing with it. Yes, God, I see it. I agree with you. This is your design. It's good. Condemnation is being destroyed for your behavior. You need to learn to embrace one and ignore the other. That's the point, right? Learn to embrace one and and not the other. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Here you go, Timothy. You and your church, it's useful for four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. What's one thing we don't hear? Condemnation. So, all of us have sinned. All of us are adulterers. No one is innocent here. Conviction, yes, for all of us. Condemnation, if you're following Christ, no. Finally, I think it's important to say with marriage that we shouldn't hide the problems in our marriage. Now, maybe you don't want to come up on stage and just say, I have a rocky marriage. Let me tell you all the ways that I've failed and I've made my spouse suffer. No, you don't want to do that. That's, that's probably not what I'm saying here. But don't you feel that, that, that when you get into a small group, you get into a group of friends, that, that you kind of you cover it up. You, you, you don't want the problems in your marriage to get out. You don't want your marriage to be known as the one that's rocky. Well, I remember um, looking at a car when I was young. I was buying a car, and I could only afford the Honda Civics and the Toyota Corollas and and 20-year-old ones, so really old. Uh, you know, the five-speed manual and the no wheels, you know, they were torn off, and it was awful. Anyways, these kind of cars. Uh, great gas mileage. They worked every day, but they looked like junk. But I'll tell you, one day I was uh, looking around, and I saw a Cadillac Eldorado. And this thing was eight years old. I've never bought an eight-year-old car as a young man. And I saw the picture, dark red, tinted windows, shiny silver wheels. I'm like, this is awesome. It's a V8. So I went, and I was like, I literally felt like I had found something great here. And I sat down in the car to test drive it, and the car wouldn't start five times. You know, five times. The windows wouldn't roll down. The air conditioner didn't work. The car just was, I don't know, it was a bad year for the Cadillac Eldorado. I can't remember what year it is, but if you find that car or any car in that year, I looked afterwards and I saw all the Cadillac Eldorados looked great on the outside, but none of them worked. And they were all in my price range. <laughs> you see what I'm saying here? That's, that's how we think about our marriages, don't we? We want our marriages to look great because we don't want to be embarrassed or ashamed. Here's a clue. I've never met a marriage, never seen a marriage, including my own, that isn't rocky. Think about this. If you doubt that, think about this. If I were to go back in time to 1996, when I married my beautiful wife, and I looked at myself, I know if you touch yourself, the time-space continuum blows up, but if I just looked at myself and said, okay, 24-year-old David, do I, would I see that, David, as being wise? The kind of guy that I would want to trust making the biggest decision of his entire life, of who he's going to live and spend the rest of his life with? Look at the 24-year-old David with me, won't you? <laughs> look at that person. I look back at that guy, and I'm like, I, I don't even know if you can tie your shoes, David. <laughs> I mean, you lucked out in life. I don't know how you made it, but I don't have a lot of respect for that David. And yet, that's the way God designed it, that that David would make this decision and live with it for the rest of his life. That's the way God designed it. God could have, I don't know, downloaded tons of wisdom where I see everything perfectly clearly. Now, I did make a good decision because I had a great 
group of friends and parents and older people, they were helping me figure out who I am and figure out who all the people I was dating was and try to figure out a good match. I I get that. And young people who are not married, you need to work hard. You need to work diligently. You need to listen to people when they help you with this. But at the end of the day, you're going to marry the person. And guess what's going to happen? Ten years later, they're going to be a different person. You're going to be a different person. Your life's going to be radically different. And you're going to have to wing it. Right? You're going to have to do something. The I love you on your wedding day is so different than the I love you 20 years later. Guys, you've been married. You know this is true. That is God setting you up. I mean, I'm just telling you. God is setting you up to live with this other sinner for the rest of your life. Why is that? Ask the question, why? Because every marriage is rocky. It shows you your sin. Marriage doesn't create problems. It reveals them in you, <laughs> not just in your spouse, but in you. So don't hide. Just look, let's all admit it. We're all having trouble in marriage. I get it. There's a measurement there that maybe one's having more difficulty than I get that. There's, I talked to elders. I, when I first became an elder just a year and a half or two years ago, uh, when I graduated from seminary, I was on the session and we started talking and this is marriage is the thing we talk about the most of all the problems of heresy and keeping everybody safe, warm and dry in the congregation or should we build a new building? All those things. Yeah, we talk about all those kinds of things, but marriage is the biggest topic, the most frequent topic. Come on, you know this. Don't look at your neighbor and think they have a perfect marriage because they don't. So you got to work. This is God's will for you, that you would work hard in your marriage. And if you work hard in your marriage, if you work hard in your marriage, that will communicate the gospel. True love, being completely vulnerable, and then being completely accepted. That takes hard work, great sacrifice. But, but isn't that the gospel? Your marriage can exemplify and preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. So that's marriage. Let's move on now to oaths. We're going to spend a, just a little bit of time with oaths. Here we, um, here we see Jesus contain, uh, uh, confronting a problem that he sees in the first century. Just like marriage is this big problem causing chaos. And Jesus weighs in and, and gives the true clarification here. Well, the same problem is with oaths. An oath, if you think about what an oath is, it's a promise uh, that you're going to behave a certain way in the future, no matter what. Here's how the Pharisees kind of wrestled with this problem. First problem, no one believes you. You got to admit it, right? Everybody we live in this world, everybody here lies. Everybody here cheats. Me included, you included, everybody cheats. That's the purpose of an oath, right? To bolster yourself. No one believes you. So your oath, you, you take an oath from the outside because you're not sufficient. Your word is not good enough. So you take an oath from the outside to support and bolster the veracity of what you're saying so that people believe you. And then the Pharisees said this. Well, if you want, an oath, if you want something outside of you, you know, uh, it's got to be strong. You can't say, I swear to you by this ballpoint pen that I will give you a million dollars. 
that's not strong. It's a ballpoint pen. Who cares? But if you say, I swear that God is allowed to judge me, may it ever be so severe, the judgment of God upon my head, if I don't give you a million dollars. Now that carries weight, you see. This is the problem. You can see it. If you say that to somebody and you don't do what you say, guess what? God is going to judge you. He is going to hold you to that. Because you, you use God's name in vain. That's, that's what it means. It's what you're doing. Using God's name to, and then you don't do it. God is going to judge you. And so they were like, well, we can't do that. We can't say, I promise, because no one believes me. He can't say, I promise by God, because then God's going to come get me. So loophole, I swear to you by God's temple that I'll give you a million dollars. I swear to you by God's gold in the temple. This is actually what they did. And their thinking was this, that if they reneged, that God somehow would not judge them. Because on judgment day, you can say, well, I swear by the temple. Well, I mean, the temple can judge me. <laughs> Temple's dead. So you see, you see what they're doing here. They're creating a loophole. It's a clever system that they invented to get out of promises they did not want to keep. It's just like divorce. People were promising the moon and then changing their minds and never following through for frivolous reasons. Uh, the words that bind them, they didn't bind them anymore. So what's Christ's correction here? What does he, what does he do? Well, he says, don't do that. <laughs> That's essentially what Jesus says. Don't do that. Uh, we know Christ doesn't mean never take an oath ever in any situation because Paul took an oath in Acts 18. An angel took an oath in Revelation 10. And other places we can find oaths being encouraged. So Jesus was not saying that. He was aiming directly at this cleverly invented system of getting out of what you were going to actually promise, getting out of doing what you promised. That he's taking amen and says, don't do that. Don't do that. Let your yes be yes. Now, if someone needs to verify me, my word, and they hand me a Bible, and they say, I want you to put your hand on the Bible. and do Okay, I'll do that. It's fine. I want you to swear on your mother's grave. You're, you know, you, you, you swear. Okay, I'll, but you, that makes you happy. That's great. But guess what? All oaths that you make ought to be kept. Just like it's yes or like it's no. All oaths ought to be kept. That's what Jesus is trying to say here. Now, are there any exceptions to this? Like all marriages should last forever? Is there any divorce conditions or any exceptions to getting out of the oath? Well, of course there are. Jesus didn't mention them, but, but you can obviously think of a few. And again, the human mind, as soon as we think of one, we think of 20, and then we have the same problem the Pharisees had. We're trying to get out of things, right? But you can see in 1 Samuel 25, David made an oath to kill someone. And then realized it was a sin. So yeah, you shouldn't keep your oath because you promised to do a sin. So you shouldn't. You see, there's exceptions, of course. But what Jesus is saying here to us today is to keep your word. To be full of integrity. What's our application? There's lots of things you could say, but let me just mention a few. First, be clear in what you promise. Be clear in what you promise. Don't promise something you can't control. I remember lots of shows, you know, the dad goes away to fight the bad guys in some place and the daughter's crying and he looks at his daughter and he says, I promise 
I'll be okay. You know those lines, they're common. I promise I'll be okay and come back. But you can't. So don't promise what you cannot control. You've got to take it seriously. If you need to write down your oaths, write them down. Don't, don't forget them and don't renege. Write them down. It's interesting it was a football coach from Colorado sitting in an FCA meeting, and he dreamt, as the meeting was going on, he dreamt of the day that there would be a conference specifically for guys that would teach guys how to be godly, godly men. Do you know what he called that first conference in 1995? Promise keepers. Sorry, 1990. Promise keepers. Think about that, guys. If you're a guy... There's such an epidemic in our society. There are 41,000 lawsuits every day in America. Can you believe that? Nobody, nobody keeps their word. We all lie. And men, stand up. I mean, don't stand up. But come on, men. The, 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 it's clear that men don't keep their word. What an indictment that is. Listen to the song that they sang, exceeding all my expectations, I find myself believing you, God, with no hesitation. Because you've proven to me you're awesome, I can clearly see my life is yours. I see you so sovereign, you're the only God so wise. In your hands you hold my times. I can hold you to your word. You are never wavering. You won't turn. For I am sure. For I know you are the promise keeper. Their first conference, 4,200 people, men showed up. Why? Because that resonated. Yes, keep your word. Keep your promises. In 1997, almost a million men gathered in the National Mall, and they sang that song together. Some ways you might be tempted. If your word doesn't stand by itself... Right? If you're trying to get out of something that you promised, or, or better yet, you're trying to get out of being a bad guy or a bad girl, or you're a bad person, you're trying to not take the blame for something, you blame God. You throw it on God. You use him. Let me give you some examples of this. Uh, you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Right? You use God's name. God told me I need to work on my relationship with God. It's, it, those things can be true, but they're not, they're not verifiable. And, and what you're doing is it's not my fault. Oh, by the way, it's not your fault either. It's God's fault. You see what you're doing. This is one way that we can lack integrity with our words, with what we say. You can, uh, you can see this sometimes in businesses. I'm not throwing rocks in any business that does this, but you can see, is that really a Christian business? You know, the little fish on the thing. On the, this is, you know, some, some kind of business that's got a little fish. You're like, oh, they're Christians. Therefore, they're going to be honest, right? They're going to be more honest than the average. So you kind of use God to bolster your word in some way. Do you really know what you're saying yes to when you join Christ Community Church? Do you understand what that means when you say, I'm going to be a member here? So just when, when you think about having integrity, there's all sorts of ways that this can, can re, you can find application. Our words, they bind us. What we say matters. And yes, we're going to make mistakes. One last question before we take communion. 
if we all fail at this, which we all do, we all lack integrity. How can we be a witness for Christ? Doesn't that bug you? If I lie, if I cheat, if I make a mistake, if I sin, that that is going to hurt my witness. There's some faulty thinking there. Let me set you free from the guilt of that, the shame of that, by asking you this question. Very simple. What is your witness? When you say you're a witness, what is, what is your witness? What is that? Let me suggest there's three parts to your witness. And first and foremost, it's your failure. That's the first part of your witness. If people think you don't fail, that you're just a mighty spiritual machine, you know, you just have your quiet times and are always with the Lord and you're all, if they never see you fail or never see you admit your failure, what are you? You're not a witness. You're what others ought to witness too. You're the object of witness. There's only one of us that is worthy of that title, and that's Jesus. Jesus is not a witness. Jesus is what we witness. Yeah, we, we show people. Think about this. Think about this. Um, your failure meets Christ's salvation and produces growth. That's your witness. How could I actually keep my vow to my wife? Pretty amazing, isn't it? A guy like me, standing in 1996, the knucklehead 24-year-old that I was, and I'm faithful in my marriage for 50 or 60 years. How could that possibly be? I'll tell you why. Because Christ saved me and then changed me and grew me. That's a witness. That's the proclamation of the gospel. Think about the salt and light analogy. When a light appears, a lamp or a flashlight, you turn on a flashlight. I mean, how many of you go camping, it's pitch black, you take out your flashlight, you click the button, and everybody in your group stares at the light like this? Nobody. Nobody does that. When a light is turned on, people look at what the light brings to vision. They look something outside of the light. That's your life. You stand here and say, yeah, watch this. Click. The light goes to Jesus. Look at him. He's the one. The same thing with salt. Salt salt doesn't have a taste in its own right. What does salt taste like? Chicken, hamburger. I mean, whatever, whatever it touches, it tastes. Because salt, nobody eats salt here. I know you might lick it sometimes. I know you're salty. I know that. But, but nobody eats salt, right? So this is the thing. This is the thing with salt. It brings out whatever the food is. It brings out the flavor of that food. That's your life. You're not to be feasted upon that way. You're not. You're salt. You're bringing out the flavor of Jesus, You're the aroma of life and mercy and grace of Jesus. So that people that see your life, your failure, Christ's salvation, and your growth can say, as the psalmist does in Psalm 34, 8, he says, come and taste and see, not that David is good, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Aren't you glad you worship a God whose word is true? His word is true. When he spoke the world into being, his word is true. 
when he told Adam and Eve that they would die if they ate that fruit against the serpent, his word is true. When God promised never to destroy the world again like he did with the flood, the rainbow, his word is true. When God promised a blessing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his promises, they're, they're true. When God called Moses into leadership, his word is true. When God gave us his perfect law, his word is true. When God told David that his throne would never end, that was true too. God predicted over 300 details about this promised Messiah. They all were true. When Jesus stood up and said, get up and walk, winds be still, water turn to wine, Jesus' words are true. Jesus predicted his death. That was true. When Jesus predicted his resurrection, thank God that was true. And Jesus said he would go and prepare a place and that he would come back. His word is true. When he said that all authority has been given to me, I want you to go and make disciples and I will be with you to the end of the age. His word is true. That's what we have here on this table. The bread and the wine, that's the symbol of of our king, whose word is true, the one with integrity. We see his broken body. We see his blood shed. And we're going to come down this aisle, just like a bride would, to meet his, her groom, to become one flesh with Christ. And we are going to participate in communion. As... As we do that in just a moment, let me read these words from Isaiah 55. Come, all who are thirsty. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. So as we prepare for communion, if you follow Jesus, this is your moment. This is your time to come and feast with us. If you haven't followed Christ, I would hesitate. Let's just stay in your seat and reflect on what we've talked about. But don't, don't do something that isn't true for you. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my body broken for you. I want you to eat this in remembrance of me. Jesus said, this is my blood. And this blood, this blood, as it's poured out of this pitcher into this cup, it's, it's shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, as we begin this communion part of our service, we pray that you would work in our hearts with grace, love, truth. Help us to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.